Well, a few days uh, from now, we will be celebrating Christmas. Many people will be celebrating Christmas, which means, uh, among, among other things, that we are at a point uh, in the year in which if you are a student, if you are a student in elementary school or middle or high school, or you are a student in college, you right now are very likely on a break. You're on a break from writing assignments, reading assignments, various kinds of homework. You're on a break from tests. In some ways, you're on a break from learning. But in a week or two, sorry to bring the news to you, you will be returning uh, to more reading, to more assignments, to more tests. Why? Because you have much to learn. And yet for every single one of us, whether you are young or old, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are enrolled each and every day in the school of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are enrolled in the school of the Holy Spirit. And throughout our life of faith, Christ teaches us. He teaches us many things. And he teaches us from his word, and he teaches us from his providence, his way of orchestrating and governing and determining the events of our lives. And we apply his word to those providential works in our lives, including the storms that he sends in our lives, or the storms that he sends us into, which are a part of his providence. And this morning, as we continue in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 14, the story centers on a storm. But it's not any kind of storm. It is a providential storm. Christ sends his disciples into this storm to teach them lessons, to teach them about his watchful eye, his eye upon their souls, to teach them about the assurance of his word spoken right into their heart in the midst of their trial, to teach them about the invitation to come, to come to him. So let us listen now to God's word. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, this is the second storm that the, that the disciples face that we have recorded uh, in Matthew's gospel. 
The first came back in chapter 8, a similar kind of storm. We were told there that this storm came and the waves were swamping the boat. The disciples were together in the boat and Jesus was with them. Remember, he was asleep during the storm. So the disciples have seen storms before, but we're going to learn that there's a couple things that are different about this particular storm. One thing is for sure, the disciples are learning that following after the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer, as a saint, as a Christian, as a disciple, is not always smooth sailing. It's not a sea of glass. Already through Matthew, not only have they seen a physical storm, but they are learning uh, from Christ that, as he said, to follow him means to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. Following him means to be among tares and weeds that the evil one sows around one's life. It means to be with Jesus among the needy and the ailing and the sick, as we see him doing in chapters 8 and 9. It means, even as Jesus said, to be hated by others for my name's sake. That the gospel will divide people. It will divide friends. It will divide family members at times. And you will be hated. So they've learned about trials already. And here, yet again, they face another trial. It is a storm. And so it centers around the Sea of Galilee. In Scripture, the Sea of Galilee is known as the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Gennesaret, and the Sea of Kinnereth. It had several names that it went by. The Sea of Galilee, 13 miles long, 6 to 7 miles wide, shaped like a harp. And just as in Jesus' day, so still today, it is abounding with fish. And at times we learn it can be quite stormy and tumultuous. As far as the four Gospels are concerned, it is really the the most important body of water in the Near East. Most of Jesus' ministry during his Galilean ministry centered right around this lake or this sea. It's the center of Jesus' ministry domain. So much so that the Gospel writers at times will simply call it the sea, which they do in verse 26 of our text. It's the sea. And characteristic of this sea is the abruptness, as I mentioned, the sudden nature of mounting storms. And that is characteristic of the Christian's life. Sudden trial, sudden calamity, sudden opposition will hit a Christian. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the betrayal of a friend, or worse, the betrayal of a spouse, the news of serious illness, the storms, the trials of life, these things define the people of God. And we are to understand them as God's providence in our lives. And yet, as the disciples are hit with this storm, we learn there's a few things that are different about this storm. For one, Jesus not only knows they are in the midst of the storm, in fact, this whole story Uh, emphasizes Jesus' providence and sovereignty. He comes at a particular time. He walks upon the waves. He calls and sustains Peter in the midst. He not only knows that they are in this storm, he had sent them into this storm. Verse 22 tells us immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Remember from last week, 
Jesus had just finished feeding the thousands, the multitudes. He has gone by himself to pray, but he had sent the disciples in the boat by himself. That's an important uh, additional point. Jesus has lessons for his disciples that the crowds do not get. Just like the church gathered together every week, we are set apart like those disciples in the boat because he has things to teach his, his believers. Sometimes, in the school of God's providence, he sends us into storms to teach us, to shape and define our faith. The disciples obey his word. Isn't it most often or quite often that the storms of life are the result of our disobedience? Not here. They go into the boat just as Jesus sent them. He sends them into the boat. It is their obedience that brings them into this storm. They do just as Jesus said. So much of our faith is forged in the furnace of trial. Peter, so central in the story here, is learning about trials. No wonder he would later in his own letters write about them. But perhaps more than any of the New Testament authors, Peter emphasizes the role of suffering and trial. Remember 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the coming of Christ. Peter recognizes the role of grief and pain and sorrow that comes through trials. He doesn't say, well, you just put on a happy face. He says rejoice because he knows trials serve the purpose of proving and shaping the faith of God's people. Uh, like gold that's fired, like glass that is blown, heated to thousands of degrees to be shaped and to be molded, impurities to be removed. So the disciples are learning about the place of trial in the school of Christ. But then there's something even more significant about this particular storm, because as the waves are beating upon the boat, the wind, it says, pressing against them, this time Jesus is not in the boat with them. He's not with them. He was with them in the first storm. In fact, he was at complete peace. He was asleep. At least in their panic and in their fear, the disciples could call upon their master. He's right there, and they awake him. Now, we might interject at this point, thinking to ourselves, but Jesus never leaves us. Jesus is always with us by his Spirit. And yet every Christian knows that there are times when his presence seems far away. When we don't understand why these events have come upon us. Why am I in this storm? Loss of life, pain in a relationship, a deep discouragement. Now these aren't things that believers ask for, but they are things we must see as God's providence to teach us. And they're having to interpret and understand these things. Our Lord is 
not interested in giving us an easy life. He's interested in giving us a blessed life, which means two things. Not only seeking a holy life after God, but one that is willing to endure and struggle through the ways of God. Not only seeking a holy life after God, but one that will endure and struggle through the ways of God. And sometimes those can be confusing to us. Doubt in our minds. A few years ago, while I was traveling and serving uh, the Lord outside the U.S., I was awakened very early one morning by a phone call about 4 a.m. from my wife, Shelly. And uh, we learned that we were pregnant with our fourth child. And uh, it was very emotional for us because we were not planning on it. Of course, if you're not not planning on it, I guess you're planning on it. But uh, God had his particular plans, that's for sure. And it took a few days uh, for myself and I think for Shelley in our mind and heart to get ourselves kind of around this new reality. And Indeed, this is a gift from God. And so our hearts were filled with joy. But then that joy, just weeks later, a couple months later, turned into sorrow as that life was lost. It passed away. Miscarriage, the passing of life from gladness to sorrow. Many of us have experienced these realities in varying degrees from clarity to fog. I was reminded just this past week reading about John Owen, the great Puritan in the 17th century, His first marriage was to Mary Rook. She bore 11 children. Only one daughter uh, made it to adulthood. He never wrote a word about it. And he wrote much. Amazing. Why, O Lord? Or how long, O Lord? John Ortberg, contemporary Christian author, says, if you ask people who do not believe in the Lord, why they do not, the number one reason will be suffering. Yet if you ask people who believe in the Lord, when they grew most spiritually, the number one answer will be suffering. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender the self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What's striking, furthermore, in this episode is that as Jesus sends his disciples into what would become a storm, he had dismissed the crowds, and he had departed to go and pray alone. With all of the ministry demands that Jesus had upon him. In fact, John's gospel says that those crowds that he sought to dismiss and indeed did eventually sought to make him by force king. They wanted to upset and overturn Roman rule or their sense of oppression. And yet Jesus rejects that kind of kingship. He chooses to go to be alone in prayer. There's a lesson in itself. The necessity and priority of devotion to the Father in prayer. And he's in prayer, many of the commentators uh, suggest, all night long. Verse 23 says that as the evening drew on, the boat was a ways off, beaten by the waves, the wind against them. And Jesus then comes in the fourth watch of the night. 
He's been in prayer since he dismissed the crowds in the evening through the night. So the disciples now are learning not only about the importance, the place of trial in God's providence, but now they're learning about the watchfulness of Christ over their souls. He comes, the fourth watch of the night. The night was from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., four watches, 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and Jesus comes in that fourth watch, 3 to 6 a.m., which also means the disciples very likely have been battling this storm for hours, hour after hour. Remember, Jesus is outside the boat, but his disciples are never outside of his sight. They are not outside of his eye. Their eyes are on the wind and the waves, the trouble, but his eye is on them. And his eye is on us. What an encouragement for disciples that even in the midst of trials, he's watching over his people's souls. Tim Laniak, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, lived in Israel and did extensive research on the behavior of, of, of shepherds and sheep. And he interviewed many shepherds. And one Syrian shepherd that he interviewed quoted an old proverb who said, a good, a good shepherd sleeps like a panther with one eye open. And that's like our Lord. The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He will neither slumber nor sleep. And here Jesus, he's not only watching his disciples, he knows just when to come to relieve them. He comes at just the right time. It's the fourth watch of the night. He knows when to relieve us in our struggles or our sorrows or our pains. He doesn't come in front of the waves. He doesn't come behind the waves. He comes in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the trial or struggle. He reveals himself. Walking on the sea, we're told they don't recognize him. They're filled with fear. Sometimes Jesus is near us, but we do not recognize it. This has happened many times throughout Scripture. Remember Jacob in Genesis 28, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. Mary Magdalene, after the resurrection of Christ, said to the gardener, Sir, tell me where you have laid him. And the gardener was him, the Lord Jesus, there in John 20. The men on the road to Emmaus, walking there with Jesus, did not recognize him until later when Jesus broke bread with them. And so the disciples, they're learning about God's providence and trials. They're learning about his watchfulness over their lives. And in the midst of their fear, what does Jesus do? He speaks to them. A third lesson. The power of his word spoken to the heart. They cry out in fear, and it says immediately, straightway, Jesus speaks to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So the disciples are learning where comfort, where courage comes from. From the presence of Christ and from the word of Christ. 
Jesus doesn't even reveal his name. At least at first, it doesn't appear that he does. But when you read those words in, in the uh, original, take courage, it's take courage, I am. Those words, it is I, right? It's I am. Important words, including all the names of God in, in a way. The divine name of God. The name that God revealed to Moses, I am who I am. The God who is. And Jesus uses this. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Do not fear, I am. He speaks and his word gives comfort. What an important application for us. John Henley a pastor in England wrote a book called Serving Without Sinking. He says this, If you ever find yourself not listening to Jesus' words in Scripture because you feel there is too much Christian service to be done, might it be because you think he needs your work more than you need his words? How we need his words daily to sit under his word to allow the power of his word to penetrate us. Notice what Peter says to the Lord. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Uh, Peter does not ask the Lord for a promise. He doesn't say, Lord, if I, if I come out there, will you promise that I won't sink? I think we want those kinds of promises sometimes uh, from the Lord. We don't want to fail. We're afraid of failure, perhaps. We don't want to experience a sinking. So we don't put ourselves out there. If I go in this direction, Lord, if I, if I choose this route, if I take this risk, but significantly, Peter does not ask for a promise. What does he ask for? He asked for a command. Lord, if it's you, more likely it means, Lord, since it is you. Peter hears the voice of his master. He knows the voice. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's the command of Jesus. It's the word of Jesus that causes Peter in great part to get out of the boat and to walk. I love what the Church Father Jerome said of this verse, The Lord commands, and immediately waters become solids. When the Lord commands something, He enables us to carry out that command. That's why St. Augustine prayed those uh, famous words, Lord, command what you want, and give what you command. Command what you want, and then give what you command. Because we're not able to carry out Christ's commands apart from Christ's power, the power of his word. And then finally, we learn of the invitation of the Lord. One word in verse 29, come. Command me, Lord, come. And Peter, eager, as Peter often is, eager to step out. No matter what is standing in the way, rough waters, waves, wind, trouble, hardship, what are we willing to face? What are we willing to endure to be with Christ? And there Peter, eager to be in the presence of the Lord, steps out of the boat. He begins to walk toward the Lord. 
But then what happens? He sees the wind and he's afraid. There are many things that will distract us, divert our attention, discourage us from seeking Christ, and we begin to experience a sinking in our lives. What began to fill Peter's mind and heart? Doubt. He has doubt. Peter was not without faith. Jesus even says to him, Oh, you of little faith. Peter believes doubt is not unbelief. The opposite of belief is unbelief. Peter does not have unbelief, ultimately. He has doubt. Doubt is a level of uncertainty. Peter believes savingly in the Lord, and yet he experiences doubt. Doubt, if we're honest, is a part of the experience of walking after the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be a doubt about the will of God at a point in our lives. A doubt about God's providence. Questions of why, where, O Lord, how long. Uh, Doubts about the presence of the Lord. Think about doubting Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. After the resurrection, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, the place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then appearing to Thomas, Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Very similar. Here in the midst of Peter's doubt, what does Jesus do? Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. Even in our doubts, Jesus grows the assurance of our faith. Not for the world. Not for the world. For the world, their doubts about who Jesus is only deepen their unbelief. But for us, we who are believers... God uses our doubts only to deepen our faith. Do not fear the place of doubt or uncertainty at times. He uses those very things to grow us in assurance. He uses our weakness. He uses our doubts at times to strengthen our faith. Peter is learning this. The disciples are learning this. As we at times struggle to cling to Christ, remember, Christ has his grip on us. Do not fear. I am. Come. Step out. For in his grace, he holds you uh, in his grip. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for the school that you have called us into to teach us important lessons about following after your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the trials that you bring into our lives or that you send us into according to your providence. Lord, we thank you for your word, that word spoken to us that gives us assurance and strengthens us. We thank you, Lord, that even as we experience at times in our lives sinking, that you have us in your grip and that you will not allow one of your sheep to fall away. 
Lord, may, may that assurance grow us in our faith, in our trust in you. Lord, we pray that we might see ourselves not only individually, but as your people in this boat together as this covenant family. As you continue to instruct us and teach us, sanctifying us according to your divine will, your good and pleasing purposes, O God. Cause us, like Peter, according to your command, to step out of the boat, to come to you, to enjoy life with you. For this we pray with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.